so we do for background uh phil we have like a minute of dance at the start and okay. sometimes we forget to press record. You lose out on the best bands, yeah. We literally, the best bands is lost to history. I think the best bands has been lost to history, sadly. So, uh, Yeah, that, there was that um, uh, curse-ridden tirade that you did last time, Lesh. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and it was like, it was just, it was everything. It was like sexist, racist, homophobic. <laughs> like, yeah. It was awful, awful, terrible. I don't even know where it came from. It just kind of happened. Luckily, Dan has a recording, so he can... Uh... <laughs> Can blackmail you later, just as you're reaching the peak of your uh, of your success. Yeah, you'll see a great front page of the Sydney Morning Herald in about ten years. Lash, I hope you look forward to that. <laughs> Is it bad that I also feel now I need to make it clear that's not the case? I felt like it wasn't going to be the case, but yeah, I think it's good to. Yeah, Phil was like, maybe it's true. Maybe I'm always never really trusted that Matthew Lash. You know, I always thought, yeah, I always had it in him, especially the homophobia. You know, it's just there. It's very deep. <laughs> Smith Issues podcast. My name is Matthew Lash, I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host, now Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor, and Philip Salter, the founder of the Entrepreneurs Network. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing boosting innovation, digital state capacity, and an entrepreneurial culture. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has declared he wants the UK to become a science superpower by embracing research and development as well as attracting global top talent. I guess just on the the kind of broader side of things, Philip, to start things off, how innovative are we in the UK at the moment? Are we living up to the mantle of the country that spawned the Industrial Revolution or have we fallen hopelessly by the wayside? Well, I think living up to the kind of first industrial revolution is probably a bit of a tricky one for, for any country. It's probably one of the most kind of profound things that happened in, in, in history. Um, but that said, I think, yeah, we're doing pretty well. I mean, obviously, everyone trails Silicon Valley, but even in the US, they, you know, every, everyone outside of Silicon Valley talks about how they can be the next Silicon Valley. So, I mean, I think the, the way I look at the UK is we're kind of midway in the Atlantic, like between the US and, you know, um, I guess I guess Silicon Valley and New York and places like that, which probably are a bit more innovative, but we're certainly ahead of Europe. I mean, even just looking at kind of unicorns, that is kind of companies that have raised a billion, over a billion dollars. We've got more than Germany, France and, Le- and, and Netherlands combined. So I think, yeah, we're doing pretty well in terms of uh, on a kind of global basis. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we're doing we're doing well, or maybe perhaps all right in the the kind of innovative stakes. If you look at the you know, top ten, top twenty companies in the world, you're not seeing a lot of UK based companies. Um, if you look at number of startups, number of unicorns, the UK does a bit well, particularly better than the EU. There's just a huge gap though between the US and everyone else in innovation, and to some extent now now China with these these kind of major companies. So I think that that's a pretty clear sign to me that, that if the UK focuses on the EU context, we're, we're going to get a false impression that we're doing particularly well. When I think there's so much more to build up to. So I'm always fascinated by Philip, um, and you're going to know more about this than I will, which is just the extent to which the startup innovative world is, is more or less state funded through the British Business Bank. It seems like a, almost all, or at least a lot of startups are, you know, the government trying to create a startup a ecosystem rather than something that would exist naturally. Uh, is is some, what happens all around Silicon Roundabout a bit uh, oversold? Well, I think, I mean, it's a really good point about how much public funds in general 
both in the UK but also internationally are kind of used to kind of effectively fund VCs and it is quite a lot I mean I remember seeing a economist article suggesting it was kind of close close to half which is quite phenomenal if true although like trying to get to the bottom of that data was wasn't straightforward I'd say and I think it's it's difficult because every country is doing it and every region is doing it um, and there are arguments in favour of doing it. I mean, there's kind of it's kind of economic orthodoxy in a sense that the private sector will not do the kind of level of R and D research that would be optimal within a country. That's orthodoxy. I mean, whether that's true or not, you know, you can argue that actually a kind of more libertarian approach is better. But that's not what most governments think. So, um, so I think you're right in saying, yeah, that's certainly the case. But there's a lot of public funds sloshing about. I think one thing that in general governments have got better at in general than the UK governments in, over the years have as well is not just throwing money at companies without any kind of um, kind of requirement that they do anything else. Um, so often it's like match funding now. So at least they have to kind of raise money privately in order to get money in the first place. And there are kind of ways in which um, which you can kind of be a bit stricter on ensuring that they kind of meet certain requirements, but then with that comes regulation and, you know, and whether you're kind of incentivizing people in the right direction. It does send a chill down my my spine thinking about um, the fact that the cost of borrowing is extremely low. There's, there's meant to be loads of private equity money around, venture capital money around, and yet at the same time, so many companies are running to the state. Maybe it's just easier because if the state offers this money, people are obviously going to take it. And you hear things from entrepreneurs, that, you know, the, the private funders they don't know what they're doing uh you know the state is so much easier and of course if you set up your whole framework around well, we're only going to give you your second round of funding if you can get your first round of funding from the government then that that's more or less the the base reality in which you live um whether or not that's the government's funding a lot of ventures that aren't necessarily economically logical i, I don't really know i think just to, to kind of th- yeah. there seems to be two questions here of interest to to any kind of free marketeer or libertarian and whatnot the first is you know should the government actually be involved in this at all and actually isn't it is it better for the private sector to to take a lead and the government not and then if we do accept that you know around the world governments do get involved in this stuff what's the best way of doing it and i think just starting on that first question philip i know you you have your free market leanings yourself do you kind of see a a necessary role for government here at, at, at any stage in terms of funding and encouraging innovation is there still a, a, a valuable role for especially that kind of early stage basic science funding for example yeah so i suppose from my side i tend to follow the economic orthodoxy of someone like kenneth arrow who says that kind of under normal conditions we don't invest enough in um, kind of um, original science the reason for that is very hard for innovators to capture value of what they're creating because of economic spillovers and those economic spillovers are also the things we should want more of so by kind of investing in early innovation in, in basic science, we get those kind of spillovers um, that, that, that aren't able to be captured by the private sector, but then are able to be kind of utilised by the private sector. And we're all kind of wealthier and, 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 and better because of it. Um, and yeah, I think there's obviously people who disagree with that. There's a kind of another model which looks at a, a kind of I get more, more of a kind of Matt Ridley approach of looking at things bubbling up from the bottom. Um, but I guess I think both happen, and I think you can't ignore the fact that some elements of um, of government involvement does actually make uh, make 
make us a bit wealthier and, 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 and better off because of it. But that's not to say that they don't invest badly a lot of the times. There's certainly a history of lots of wasted money and also kind of misallocations of resources in the wrong directions and wrong signals for, 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 it, for the wrong sorts of innovation. So I'm not, I'm kind of quite sanguine also about like the, the, the limits of this, um, but always optimistic that maybe we can get, get it right um, and, 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 and do more, more good than we do harm. Yeah, I see a, a kind of parallel here between the sort of um, R&D, basic R&D funding and the transformation that we've had in terms of international aid, which you talked about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, I think it was now. And there was, I think, you know, at least initially and certainly for, for a fair few decades, uh, a healthy and very warranted and justified free marketeer libertarian scepticism towards foreign aid and, and as well towards this sort of um, innovation funding because often it was misallocated we hadn't learned various lessons on how to do it most effectively and how to actually make the most use of that money in, in a way that wasn't in, in some areas certainly for international aid and I imagine innovation funding as well actually very counterproductive to the sort of goals that uh, we're trying to achieve um lesh would you share that kind of view of, of innovation funding i know you, you maybe um have some sympathies for that in terms of international aid though not completely yeah, I don't, I don't, um, I don't buy the idea that that the government needs to stimulate and spend big money on basic research and, and development spending. I, I think the benefits of that are hugely overblown. Uh, whilst, whilst uh, Phil, you may subscribe to the Kenneth Arrow school of thought, I, I very much subscribe to the the Terence Keeley school of thought. Um, and, and he wrote a paper for us uh, last year on Node Opera and and kind of debunking the idea that the reason why we got um, Silicon Valley and all these great innovations was because of um, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is one of Dominic Cummings' major obsessions. And now the UK is reinstituting under the name RER, um, which the UK government has allocated £800 million to create. Uh, I think that's inevitably going to be a huge waste of money. It's based upon a, a misreading of history. It, it's, it's based upon the idea that the reason why we have our modern success is because of ARPA, and that's just not true. In, in fact, Silicon Valley really boomed after ARPA was limited to defense-only projects, uh, and a lot of the ARIA figures, ARPA, sorry, ARPA figures went to go and join Xerox Parks, and then Steve Jobs waltzes in one day, and he, he steals a lot of the ideas and creates them, and then Microsoft steals them from Apple, and you get this kind of great innovative um world in Silicon Valley and the history of technological progress since the industrial revolution really does demonstrate that private businesses invest in beneficial innovations. We do not need the state uh, to do it. And even in places like South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, that's often thought the state is quite interventionist. Actually, the state spends relatively little on innovation. It's the private sector spending money on innovation and that, that boosts our, our economic growth. It's not the state spending because the state doesn't really know how to spend it its best and i don't think the state does know which projects or which technologies even today are, are going to lead to the most benefit okay well uh no one say that we don't have some lovely disagreements on the pin factory podcast but moving on from this kind of issue of basic science and r&d funding what about attracting talent um, and immigration related issues for innovation philip in your opinion do you think that brexit has now made the UK close to entrepreneurs or actually have we had some opportunities to kind of improve things in this area? Yeah, I mean, the instant reaction, I suppose, from entrepreneurs in our network was one of, I guess, slight horror. I suppose um, a lot of the high growth businesses, so we did some research to so say that basically half of 
the 100 fastest growing companies by valuation have were born outside the UK. So, and a lot of those were European and they kind of came over here kind of studying in the UK and being able to stay on afterwards. So the position we were in after Brexit was looking pretty dire, but things have really, really changed since then. So Theresa May got rid of the post-study work visa. Now that's coming back, um, which is brilliant. So that means anyone that studies in the UK can stay on afterwards. And as you mentioned, the high potential visas is absolutely phenomenal, I think. It basically means anyone from a top university, that has yet to be defined, but if, as long as it's defined in a, in a kind of quite a liberal way, um, and that's anyone in the world is able to come over to the UK without any kind of, without having to have a job offer. And that, in a sense, is better, that, not better for European citizens, but better for kind of global citizens kind of than the situation we were at the start. So I think offsetting the, the, the kind of end of free movement was always going to be difficult, but I think they're coming as close as anyone could reasonably expect the government to, to do. So it's a, nice to be able to talk positively about a government change, but like on visas, um, it's, been, it's been quite remarkable, I think. Yeah, I think both on the post-study work visa return and this new high potential visa, it's kind of a recognition of what I think a lot of people's concerns were around a move to a, a post-Brexit kind of more points-based, at least in quotation marks immigration system is that you know somebody might look good on paper and, and has a job offer etc um, might not necessarily be the only sort of person you want to attract to the UK and and yeah and both the the post-study visa and the high potential visas are kind of recognition that actually you don't always have to have uh, a job offer when it comes to these sort of things you don't always have to have something you can just waltz into and often the way that we create uh, and nurture talent from abroad best is getting them in a wider pipeline, something that maybe takes a few years where, you know, they might not have something they're working on straight away, but they're clearly a talented individual. You can see from various proxies that they are probably going to do something that is extremely valuable to the economy and to everyone else um, through their their innovative skills. So it is good news. Um, Whether or not it's going to make up for the kind of shortfall as a result of the ending of free movement, I think, is another question. And I, I'm sure you probably share my concerns, Philip, here, that there's it's going to be very difficult for the, any increase in non-EU migration, even if it is well-tailored and, and well-designed, to, to appropriately make up for that quite significant shortfall in foreign talent that we became very used to during our, our time in the EU. Uh, Matthew, do you see things maybe a bit more optimistically than me on this? Probably a little bit more pessimistically in the sense that uh, I worry that when the government starts kind of picking high talent individuals, you, you get that classic problem. You also find, Phil, when the government starts trying to pick winners in uh, the economy when it comes to R&D, which is the state doesn't necessarily Wait. have the knowledge necessary to identify who is of the highest talent. Now, I appreciate they're trying to make that effort. And I also appreciate the fact that inevitably the government um, has to decide who who comes to this country. You, you can't necessarily politically, even if even if you might support it philosophically, Daniel, have a, a limitless immigration program. So I suppose it's then about making sure the immigration program is as friendly to entrepreneurs as possible, has as as little possible paperwork burden and cost burden on companies to, to bring people over. Now you're going to miss a lot of good people in the process, and maybe you're going to miss a lot of bad people in the process. You might you might also 
need to think about the fact that well, it's not just about the highest of talent, but also the highest of talent need medium talent people um, to work with them. Uh, you know, you need you need the middlers as well to make a company function. And if you can't get those people, and you have the the labor shortage there, and the high, entire system just says get over the high talent people. Well, if the high talent people can't employ other good people, they're going to be in a difficult situation as well. So I, I think although the the, the you know the quote unquote points based system um, makes a lot of sense politically, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination yeah no i agree i mean i think there's the the great thing about free movement was that people kind of came and left as opportunities presented themselves and obviously and in in general we were getting higher levels of kind of skills i suppose than the than the native population as well so the argument that it was all kind of low skilled or low paid depending on how you want to phrase that um wasn't really the case i suppose with the visa system though as as you know as you said i think the the challenge is always the issue of whether you can really, you know, how many people you can really have and, and what kind of political consequences they're going to be. And I think the reality is that people don't care so much about high-skilled migrants. And I think they do have a kind of outweighted impact on economic growth. If you look at the kind of what effectively are those 50 businesses, they're the 50 businesses that we all, we'd all know well and kind of the services we use. And they were starting with the idea of, 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 of immigrants um, and they're employing you know thousands and thousands of people and turning over millions. So I think you can, if you have to choose between people, then perhaps that's one you can understand why the government chooses on that basis rather than on the basis of of other things. But if you look at some communities like when during Idi Amin's reign, um, when we had when we got all the Indian population coming over from Uganda, they were extremely entrepreneurial and they were effectively came with nothing. So as you say, if we were to to just choose people from top universities, we'd miss out on, on you know, communities like that who've had a huge kind of profound impact as well, at least on a kind of on an entrepreneurial basis. Well, moving on from the innovative impact of people to the innovative impact of computers, uh, let's go to our next topic, which is on digital state capacity. COVID-19 has hired the failures of Britain supposedly Rolls-Royce civil service. We saw, by contrast, many East Asian states not only responding quickly, but also notably using technology in much more innovative ways to fight the virus. To begin with, why do we think it's important to improve the quality of digital service delivery? Phil, you've been writing about this topic at the Entrepreneurs Network. Yeah, it's a topic I never thought I'd get particularly excited about, I suppose, but it's something that's kind of really captured my interest. Are you saying, hold on, are you saying talking about government IT projects is not exciting? I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. No, well, you believe it or not, believe it or not, it's kind of, uh, it crept up on me from behind. But um, I think it really matters because we've all kind of seen the innovations, I suppose, in our daily lives, whether it's kind of Google or Uber or Deliveroo or whatever the kind of things you use. And how that's had a really kind of profound impact on our lives for, for the better. But we obviously haven't seen any of that in government. And if it wasn't happening other, in other places in the world, we could all just sit back and say, well, that's government. You know, it never, it never does it. It never delivers any of this stuff. But there are countries that weirdly are able to, to deliver this through, through the public sector. And, it's, and, and although potentially some of this stuff could be privatized and there's elements and there's certainly elements of private delivery of a lot of the stuff i think it really is kind of would have a profound impact on people's lives whether it's stuff like the way you're educated like getting kind of bespoke medicine getting um you know kind of trials taking place um kind of remotely all these there's hundreds of thousands different kind of applications i suppose for, for these things and they're proving really kind of popular around around the world and we are after initially being quite quite positive on it kind of lagging behind 
So I do think it really would matter and everyone would just kind of have much easier, less stressful lives if they could just interact with the state in a, in a much more kind of efficient way. Yeah, I think this has really been brought home to me by the pandemic because I think it's very tempting for free marketeers, particularly, you know, when you get rah-rah and very excited about it uh, as you're coming to the ideas to think, well, the state should basically just be extremely small and wither away. Uh, and uh, although that uh, might be an aspiration that, that some have, realistically, that's not happening, that the state isn't going anywhere and the state is doing more than we would like it to do. And perhaps either legitimately or illegitimately providing a lot more services and providing a lot more transfer payments and um, really in the middle of a global pandemic, we're directly responsible for public health in a very meaningful and traditional way. And we should have a stake Um I think about this in the fact that we spend about a third of our income goes to the state directly, if not a little bit more than that. Well, geez, if I if I spend a third of my income on something, I'd really want them to provide that service as well as possible. And it really pushes back against this kind of classic, classic Barry Goldwater quote is, I have little interest in streamlining government or making it more efficient for I mean to reduce its size. I and mean, that's a temptation. But realistically, day to day, um, we want a state that we can interact with with the minimal possible harm to, to citizens, uh, be that having an app which you can is a one-stop shop for all parts of government, just one login rather than having 18 different logins, being able to interact with the NHS, being able to interact with schools, being able to get your driver's license updated, all that kind of technology that, that's being developed. And I think at one point the UK was very much world leading on this in introducing um, gov.uk and the government digital service and is now... Um, arguably fallen behind. Um, a good example of this in my mind is Service New South Wales, or Service NSW, and that is just one app for every function with the state um, in that particular state. And then you compare it to other parts of Australia that haven't been necessarily as innovative on that front. Um, and that, that's a huge problem. But I'm kind of just in, in potentially, I guess, why the UK might have fallen a bit behind on this. Uh, Dan, I don't know if you want to come in there. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that the kind of idea of a uh, one-stop shop like you have in, in um, New South Wales, I think is a fantastic aspiration. The problem with the UK and trying to apply that to the UK is that all of our, our different departments of government are very siloed, I think, and very reluctant to give in to the idea that there should just be one login and actually, you know, maybe the Treasury should have its own separate system and maybe the NHS as a massive... Um, over-centralized monolith must also have its own system uh, and I think that there's a reluctance to kind of for these departments to talk to each other and share those characteristics when they've got their own separate cultures um, very long established and that makes it really difficult to actually bring through a sort of unified system even though that's undoubtedly what we should be aspiring to right and in fact what I think the government has said that they will aspire to but it, these sort of things, it sounds quite minor, right, in terms of, oh, you know, who who cares if you've got two or three different logins for different government services, but it can make a huge difference in many different ways, not just from the kind of the end user, the consumer aspect of having to remember a hundred different passwords if you, you know, for example, have claimed benefits at some point in your life, or you've used the NHS at some point in your life, or, you know, you, you need to self-report tax or something like that. Um, or even something as simple as just saving time on your tax return. So uh, I know Estonia, you can actually have some of your tax forms pre-filled in with data that the government already holds. These sort of things save a lot of time, especially calculated over the size of the UK population, even if on the individual level, it, it's fairly marginal. But there's another aspect to this as well that I think is quite important. Um, and it's that you really can't deal with 
these these many services as an individual and not get bogged down you get massively bogged down if you're trying to manage for example a hundred different logins as if you're a, a data administrator or something like that it makes it much harder for departments to cooperate um, with each other and share data and and use that data for more positive means now if i'm a, a kind of privacy activist, then I guess I might be concerned that if the government becomes more efficient at um, using our data in, in central databases, then that could present concerns from a privacy aspect. But ultimately, I think it's more important to be just talking about making the government mm. more efficient. Mm. There, I mean, there are some ways in which I think the government did actually handle particularly well the crisis. Now, not generally not on the public health side, but if you look at you know, um, um, universal credit as a good example here, a system that was very challenging to build up, but managed to deal with a huge load very quickly. Alternately, the treasury and the furlough schemes seem to work quite effectively. Um, but Phil, I'm kind of interested in where you see as kind of the barriers to um, improving governance, including improving kind of digital state capacity. I think Daniel Hyde won there about the unwillingness of different departments to to coordinate and work together. Yeah, I mean, you can have the once-only principle, which kind of originated in Estonia as well, where you kind of force... Um, basically force departments to share information because if I get, give depart, you know, give one department my information, they aren't able to then ask me for the same information. I just say, actually, I've already given it to, to the Department for Health and you can and you can share that across. I think one thing that's worth picking up on with, with, with Daniel's point around privacy, because I think it is a really important thing. I was kind of pretty no to ID when that was all happening. Um, and the reason for that was because basically what was being proposed then um, during kind of new labor was one big database a centralized database with all this information on which wasn't particularly safe whereas if you look at the models that have grown out in, Austri- in um, Estonia and Finland and other countries is there you have different departments still holding different data they already hold that data now it's just a matter of sharing data in a in, in, a, in a safe way and I hate to use the word blockchain but you can use kind of very kind of safe protocols and ways in which data can be shared and actually the, the privacy aspect can be or is even greater. I mean, Estonia is on the border with Russia and it has had major kind of hacks, hack attempts with their data. We don't have that that same level of threat, um, but they've managed to kind of stave off that. Whereas I think the UK probably get UK government probably gets hacked a lot more than we know about um, in terms of the data that, that we all have. So I think on that kind of safety protection, we can kind of build in, but we can also build in additional things. So for example, let's say I wanted to kind of not be part of the system for whatever reason you should be able to i think be able to say actually i prefer to leave my life a little bit more complicated in a more complicated way i don't mind kind of filling in forms but i don't want the government to hold this sort of information about me maybe there's some that they will automatically hold because we live in a <laughs> in a state but but you can opt out of quite a lot of things and for example in other countries you can see when organizations or individuals access your data we don't know when who and when is who and who and when people are accessing our data in the UK, whereas in other countries can literally go on and say, oh, okay, the Department for Health shared information with the Department for um, Work and Pensions for this particular reason, and this was the person that did it. I mean, that that's more kind of freedom and more kind of knowledge, I suppose, for, for citizens. Daniel, do you get a bit worried, though, about some of the potential privacy implications of the, the, the kind of single digital identity? I mean, is a potential solution here that, uh, I, I guess it's on the blockchain, it's very secure, it's only accessible by people you authorize to access that identity. And so there's a question, do you allow, how do you integrate that with the private sector? Do you allow banks to access that entity that, that's with your approval? 
Um, do you think it's possible, Daniel, to do that in a privacy securing way, or would you kind of your civil libertarian instincts kind of shudder at the thought? Yeah, I don't think I have as strong civil libertarian instincts in general when it comes to these sort of things. But I do appreciate that there are very real and legitimate concerns about privacy when it it comes to the idea of any sort of single centralized database. Now, as Philip said, ideally, you wouldn't necessarily have that a a single point of failure, as it were, in the case of hacks or or things like that. Ideally, you'd you'd have a way of, of sharing between different departments that didn't involve that central database but actually just thinking about it even if there is a central database obviously that presents more problems in having a single point of failure but on the other hand if you think about kind of different departments and um, holding different individual pieces of data on you all of them with their own kind of um, in many cases ramshackle approaches to data retention actually if there was a concerted effort to create one more single database and we were serious about making sure that uh, privacy would be respected and it was more secure it could actually have a a net increase in our data security if it was done right you've got a trade-off between you know uh, centralized versus decentralized there and and one versus multiple points of failure but i think there is actually a potential for that to be a a positive if it's done correctly in terms of whether i'm i'm kind of worried about this more generally i mean I I I honestly don't think I am that much. I think that a lot of the the kind of civil libertarian concerns around this they're not necessarily the same thing as being a libertarian. I think that there's plenty of civil libertarians out there who who hold maybe left liberal beliefs for example. Um and and it's not kind of as tied up with the the free market worldview and movement as some other principles or some other issues are. Um and I think it's a good reason for that. There's a lot of people who are free marketeers who are actually not that worried about the the real world implications of certain data leaks it and it, it's kind of a case of whether you value privacy in and of itself or whether you you know we always come back to this on the podcast whether or not you think that there's going to be much negative consequences there i mean the, be- the best approach to me is having some form of opt-out capability mm. um to, to deal with people's concerns yeah i think there's some recent cases about uh the, the nhs um updating its digital systems and making a digital record of everyone and they made it um opt out rather than opt in and and potentially give people enough of an opportunity to not be part of the system and i think that's probably central here if the government is going to start trying to create this system just making it, it very clear what they're doing why they're doing it and giving citizens the opportunity to decide whether or not they want to be part of it and potentially not benefiting if they don't want to be part of it, you know, having to constantly re-enter information on a different government departments or something if you're not willing to connect to the central central system that has all this information for you. I suspect most people um, don't care that much and they'll probably just do it. But uh, as long as they have that choice, I think it's absolutely key. But on that note, time to move on to a bit of culture. <music> We often focus on the ideas of increasing productivity, uh, tax system design, research and development policy, uh, attracting talent and other technical issues when we're talking about how to encourage entrepreneurship and innovation. But there is more than statistics to uh, prosperity. Uh, And many argue that culture plays a really central role in encouraging innovation as well. I guess to start off with you, Philip, how important do you think that a culture of innovation is compared to you know some of the policies we've talked about in the rest of the podcast when it comes to encouraging entrepreneurship yeah i mean they're obviously both important i mean and they kind of feed into each other but i think culture is kind of underplayed as a, as, a, as an importance and we talked before about 
Silicon Valley. And I think it's fair to say that the kind of the fashion for entrepreneurship and, and innovation and that being a kind of high status thing within society kind of sprung out of that there in the same way that I guess you could look at kind of the hipster fashions and the things that we now see that we see in London and very familiar with also sprang out of kind of Brooklyn and New York. So I think it's very much a fashion. It's a trend that's come over and it's kind of it's certainly extremely welcome, as welcome as the kind of coffee shops and all of the kind of cool cocktail bars and things that we've, that we've got. Um, I think in terms of how, you know, kind of how you manage that, how you kind of get people, how, how you kind of affect culture. I mean, we've been doing a bit of work on that. So my colleague Anton has put together a report on arguing for a kind of new order of chivalry for innovators. And I think that's quite a fun idea um, where kind of not, so, so we looked, we basically looked at kind of people who got OBEs and CBEs and MBEs and just realised that a lot of them weren't actually getting it for business and for innovation and for the stuff they create. It's normally the charity that they set up afterwards or some other kind of social purpose, which is, which is great. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the stuff is really good, but we think probably the greatest thing that, uh, that that a lot of these people have done is actually building the product or the service that you know has made them rich and also like serve the interests of millions of people often. Um, so an order of chivalry will kind of help with that, um, and kind of hopefully something like that will take place. But more broadly, just celebrating entrepreneurship, celebrating kind of a culture of people tinkering and wanting to make little things better uh, at the margin, I think really is, is the thing that, that kind of drove the Industrial Revolution, the thing we, we kind of care a lot about. And kind of on that respect, I think there's kind of bad cultures as, as well around entrepreneurship. So when I think of the television programs that we see, things like Dragon's Den or The Apprentice, I think they're really bad kind of explanation of what it's like to run a business because it's all in, in kind of game theory, kind of one, one event whereby there's a winner and a loser and 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 that's and that's the end of it whereas in reality like 99 percent of business is cooperation cooperation with your employees cooperation with your the people that you're buying from and selling from and 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 and, and i really do think that that that's a, that's an issue so although i think there's a really positive trend towards entrepreneurship and people wanting to, to change the world for the better i think there's also still the kind of misunderstanding of how how kind of difficult it is in that sense it's actually we actually find there's a lot of, kind of it's, it's actually a very kind of cooperative and friendly and positive thing to do and you don't find yourself even really caring or thinking that much about your competitors i think but for most businesses it is when i go into schools i, I give this presentation why everything is awesome kind of going through the statistics about the kind of human progress that we've seen in the last 200 years uh, a lot of graphs. So then I kind of go in the next set, stage of that presentation and try to understand why that is the case. Why are we so prosperous? And obviously there's lots of different theories about uh, the Industrial Revolution and science and technology and reason and, and why I've achieved that. But one that I always find extremely fascinating to talk about is, of course, digitally McCloskey's, the kind of entrepreneurial culture. Now, uh, McCloskey kind of famously identifies as a postmodernist and says, well, what really made us prosperous was just this changing idea to entrepreneurialism. The fact that society particularly beginning, beginning in England in the what, early 19th century, late 18th century, just began appreciating people who, who did things, who made things, who created things. The kind of status in society went from those who conquered, which is very zero-sum and very competitive, and the way humanity had functioned for, for thousands of years and the fact that there had been very little economic growth. We managed to restructure to a society in which we were mutually cooperating with each other and we appreciated the entrepreneurs, people who created things. And I think that's, you're absolutely right when you point out that 
we often appreciate business people not for what they did to earn their wealth, but for what they do afterwards and what they do with charity. I think charity is a moral and ethical good, but I also think creating a business that provides products to people that they like and use and enjoy is also a moral good. This is why I, I get absolutely furious with the whole st- um, stakeholder capitalism model, the idea that there's something inherently evil about being a profit-seeking company and that you, sh- you shouldn't focus on seeking profit because profit is bad and you only achieve profit through exploitation. And instead you should focus on your stakeholders or the community at large. I think that's total nonsense. I think you get profit by providing value to others, by creating a product whose um, some of its part is worth more than than what it took to create it. And then giving that to people, be that, you know, a pencil, the, the thousands of people that went together into um, in the classic iPencil story about people, the person who, you know, had to mine the graphite who cooperated with someone who chopped down the tree and then it all came together and these people never met each other in the system in which, well, I pay almost nothing for a pencil and all these people have worked for my benefit to do that. And, and I think that's what the profit incentive encourages and that's what entrepreneurs encourages is actually a selfish, a selflessness. The, the fact that you are contributing to society through the products you create and you you do get rewarded for that. And that's that's the, the classic kind of Adam Smith story. It's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the baker or the brewer, but from the regards to their own interests. By acting your interests, you're cooperating with others and providing huge benefits and creating a culture and understanding around that is absolutely essential to our prosperity. Yeah, I think you're both getting a really important thing that a lot of people miss here, which is that we we do have a, a less respect for entrepreneurs than than we did in pretty much any time in our history at the moment, and that's a really terrible thing. You know, it, that makes a concrete difference to how pe- how likely people are to get involved in in an innovative new business and, and take risks and, and be creative with new products and services and I particularly like the kind of apprentice example because that seems to me the perfect kind of the cultural image that I think a lot of people have of an entrepreneur is someone who is engaged in a vicious zero-sum game where uh, you know they win at the expense of everyone else um, and it's all about being competitive and that's just not how it works in reality as you said Philip it's the vast majority of, of doing business and innovating is about cooperation and nurturing and and using people's talents to to best create um, new and innovative products and you know Matthew I think that the whole Deirdre McCloskey thesis is is truer than it ever was in terms of the kind of loss of appreciation for for businessmen uh, and businesswomen it really makes a huge difference Um, so things like the Elizabethan order as you mentioned I know um, we've also done some work on the idea of a new great fair which I think is a a fantastic and and very cool idea I'd I'd love to go to one of that myself maybe help myself some lab-grown meat um, have a a test flight in a um, in a in a drone for hire perhaps that'd be fantastic yeah I I think that there's a a huge amount of value in, in kind of changing that sort of perception of entrepreneurs and it seems like there's possibility to do it as well. If you look at opinion polling for people around the kind of companies that they most and least respect, I think surprisingly, you see people having a lot of respect for and appreciation for things like Amazon and Netflix. Now, if you can connect that to, you know, some of the people that actually are behind those companies, I think that's the difficulty at the moment. They People like the company, they don't necessarily like the individuals behind them. At the end of the day, those individuals are the ones that have made quite a significant contribution in making those companies possible. So there's certainly a, a possibility of, of trying to change people's minds on this and trying to change the cultural perception of what an entrepreneur is. And I think just to kind of finish off the final question, this touches on all the 
kind of topics that we've covered so far in the podcast. Let's say we did have um, our fantastic dream set of policies for digital delivery, for encouraging innovation, for R&D, et cetera. And uh, everyone massively appreciated entrepreneurs as the fantastic and, um, and um, wonderful human beings that they are. Can we still hope to boost productivity and wages at the same rate that we have in the past? This kind of thesis of the great stagnation, there's been a lot of research done into it that actually is just, you know, for, for reasons entirely unrelated to policy and, and culture, just brute facts of life, very difficult to come up with new ideas at the same rate that we do did before. Do you buy that idea, Philip? Do you think we are just going to have to accept a kind of lower rate of long run and innovation productivity growth, growth than we had in the past? Um, not really. I think even Tyler Cohen, who kind of popularized the, the concept, only did it for only talked about it from a kind of time limited perspective. It wasn't that there are mm. fundamentals um, at play, although there might be some fundamentals in terms of um, some aspects of of growth. But I think the thing is, there's something that creeps up on you from behind, and suddenly you're, you're going through another another revolution. And I think if you look at things like solving the protein coding problem, the vaccines, obviously. Um, things like AI. I mean, it's kind of, it sounds a bit, you always hear these long lists of things that are always kind of 10, 20 years away, but they're genuinely things are happening which are quite remarkable, I think. Um, so I'm very optimistic about, about the potential for us to have another huge spurt in productivity. I don't think it's possible for any of us to kind of sit here and predict when that's going to be exactly, but I think there's enough innovation happening that I think it's just inevitable. And there's, such, and there's so many exciting innovations happening with huge potential, and particularly, you know, AI is, is, is the most obvious. But I, think, I, think, I think we could be at the start, you know, when you look at the kind of ho- hockey stick of innovation, we take a real step back, then I think, I think we could be at the start of something kind of phenomenal, or at least, you know, next generation could potentially be, be at the start of something truly phenomenal. Obviously, the reality is that we're going through on a kind of localized basis, you know, we've gone through a period of, of stagnation and that's disappointing. And there are kind of, I'm sure there are technical reasons for it in terms of the amount of time, for example, it takes for people for, for innovate, people to come up with innovators, um, in, innovations through, um, through things like computing power and other things. And, and there's lots of kind of data around that aspect that I'm kind of convinced by on a kind of individual basis. Um, and you can look at ind- individual areas of science that have had less in that had less innovations over time and things like that and we've kind of bought in that we have gone through a stagnation but i'm not sold on the idea that that's inevitable and i think that we can that things can change and that they're kind of the sign the signs of that are already like very much a, a, apparent to me as well i think it is obvious that we've had this kind of productivity and, and income growth problem over the last 10 15 years but at the same time, I actually think I'm not 100% even persuaded by the idea that there has been a great stagnation. I think we've had huge progress, particularly in kind of consumer goods and, and consumer technology that doesn't necessarily show up, but has improved the quality of our lives. You think about something like uh, Netflix and Apple TV, and we're in, we're in an absolute boom period for, for culture and entertainment. Uh, we've got phones and computers that are unimaginably faster, but we, we actually pay basically the same money for, if not a little bit less. So I think in actually a lot of ways, um, the consumer quality of life has increased in the last 10, 15 years massively. And now we're on the cusp of another wave of technologies, another wave of innovation. Um, 
the classic here is that we, we thought the um, Moore's law would eventually end, that we couldn't keep doubling processing capacity, but somehow we just, every single time we managed to keep up with it, like the Apple M1 chip, which is in my computer, has an extraordinary processing power um, at a low battery usage. And you've got things like DeepMind for protein folding, you've got the malaria vaccine on the way, um, the, the mRNA vaccines, a universal flu vaccine potentially, and that's just in one area. We've got improved solar panels, we've got electric vehicles, um, we've got a whole bunch of different things in terms of space. I, I don't know what impact this is going to have on income, but it does seem like we are on the cusp of some huge innovations. And it's a, it's a policy question of how we boost incomes. I think that's a, almost a separate issue in some senses because all the reasons why people's quality of life isn't increasing is because of the state limiting planning, which means we, we spend so much money on housing, for example. So we can, if we can fix the policy issues, then we can fix the income issues. But the innovation seems to be coming along just fine, in my view. Yeah, the, the kind of thing that comes to mind when I'm thinking about the great stagnation idea is uh, Kuhn's philosophy of science of kind of you get a period of normal science and then suddenly there's a paradigm shift and actually everything changes massively but during that period of normal science even there are kind of important marginal improvements being made on things that already exist and I kind of in some ways see a parallel between that and the way that innovation has been taking place over the past a few years at least the past couple of decades even where it might not be that there's you know something like ai has has really taken root yet as a huge um technological paradigm shift i mean it certainly has had significant impacts already you know you mentioned deep mind uh, matthew as a great example of that but i think that in some ways that's just how the process of innovation has tended to work in history and is likely to continue to work in the past, you'll get a period of a, a few decades where there'll be incremental improvements on things that we have already improving consumer goods, um, the sort of things that you mentioned there, Matthew. And then every so often some big new technology that affects every aspect of uh, lives and the products and goods and services we consume comes along and revolutionizes the way that we do things across a number of different fields, as opposed to kind of, uh, separate things in, in separate fields taking place and for me that's not necessarily something to worry about you know the progress that we've had over the past few decades has been fantastic it's been amazing the sort of new things that we've been able to to have access to you know Moore's Law stuff is a classic example of that uh, and we shouldn't worry that we aren't immediately having a, a new revolutionary technology come through every you know four or five years or something like that i think that that that's just the way that it, it's got to work um, but on that note i think we're probably coming to the end of this week's podcast uh, and before i sign off i just wanted to say a, a massive thank you to our two editors and gap year interns joe bradshaw and hannah ord who have been fantastic and uh, taking over the editing of this podcast and making clips for social media it's a job that takes an awful lot of time um, especially with, with me and Matthew as hosts of course um, and they've done a, a really great job of that and unfortunately they'll be moving on from the air side to pastures new uh, and pastures greener so um, yeah if you hear um, some fantastic editing or rather you don't hear some of our, our terrible screw-ups and the recording of this podcast you've got those to thank for that so thank you Joe and Hannah um, that you've been listening to the Pin Factory podcast from the Adam Smith Institute my name is Daniel Pryor I'm the head of programs here at the ASI along with my co-host uh, head of research Matthew Lesh and Philip Salter the founder of the Entrepreneurs Network who was our special guest today if you like what you've heard then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider and drop us a lovely five-star rating on that and we will see you next week for another episode of the Pin Factory. Thank you.